0: many people spend their lives guarding against disappointment. Success always comes as something of a surprise to them, and failure confirms their suspicions. Now, in some cases, not getting one's hopes up may be prudent, but not when it comes to the promises of God. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and Internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, Teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. When it comes to the promises of God, we're called to get our hopes up and keep them there. Well, Phil, as you look at the direction of culture and current events today, does that make you an optimist or a pessimist? Well,
1: Mark, I like to think of myself as a realist that wants to be an optimist, but frankly, sometimes, and I look at all of the the sin and strife around us, particularly in the city. You know, it's easy to be a pessimist, but I think as believers, we are called to be full of hope in what God can do in delivering us from our sin and ultimately bringing us to his
0: glory. The title of today's message is Getting Our Hopes Up. How does that theme tie into today's lesson? Well, Mark,
1: I don't want to spoil the whole surprise that comes in today's Bible story, but it's a story about a wealthy woman who shows Elisha hospitality because she recognizes that he's a prophet of God. And in his ministry to this woman, in God's name, Elisha promises that she will receive the gift of a son. And yet the woman almost doesn't want to receive that gift. She doesn't want to get her hopes up. She's afraid that God won't really fulfill his promise. I'm not going to ruin the ending of the story, but this is a story that encourages us to get our hopes up for what God can do and what God
0: has promised to do for us in Jesus. All right, thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8, and listen to God's word for us today.
1: Don't get your hopes up, we often say. The weather forecast calls for enough snow to close school for the rest of the week. But don't get your hopes up. I think we might be pregnant, but let's not get our hopes up just yet. I have a couple of job interviews this week, but I'm trying not to get my hopes up. Many people spend their lives guarding against disappointment. Success always comes as something of a surprise to them, and failure merely confirms their suspicions. They refuse to get their hopes up. In their heart of hearts, they believe that when they kiss the prince, he will turn out to be a frog. Now, in some cases, not getting one's hopes up may be prudent, but not when it comes to the promises of God. The story of the Shunammite woman, as we find it in 2 Kings chapter 4, is a story about getting your hopes up and keeping them there. You might Divide the story into four sections. First, in verses 8 through 10, the generosity of a wealthy woman. Second, in verses 11 through 16, the doubt of a skeptical woman. Third, the grief of a bitter woman, and that's verses 17 through 28. And finally, in the last verses, verse 29 and following, a resurrection for a grateful woman. The first thing that the Bible says about elisha's friend from shunam is that she was a well to do woman verse 8 literally she was a great woman she was prominent in her local community and she was also rich the woman and her husband had as we find as we read the story many servants they even had a donkey which was almost like having a sports car in those days now you may know that the rich do not receive much favorable publicity in the bible in fact, the Scripture contains many strong warnings about the spiritual dangers of wealth. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. First Timothy chapter 6, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil." again in James chapter 5, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You see, money leads to temptation and to ruin and to evil and to apostasy and to grief and to misery and finally to judgment. And so what? we might ask, will become of us, for we are among the rich. It was to my great amazement that I went down to speak to the children and asked how many of them were rich, and saw that not a single child raised his or her hand. I suppose that is because they have parents who say, well, we're not rich, you know. But actually, we are, even many Americans who live under what we call the poverty line are among the 10% of the world's wealthiest people. And so whenever God warns the rich, He is warning us. It ought to come as some encouragement then that the story of the Shunammite shows that there is at least some spiritual hope for the rich. For just as God cared for the poor widow with the jars of oil in the first part of this chapter, so also He cares for this wealthy matron in Shunem. He is the God of the rich as well as the God of the poor. And if the rich want God to care for them, they must show the generosity of this wealthy woman. She does not hoard her treasure. She shares with anyone who is in need. She feeds the poor. She opens the doors of hospitality. There is always enough room at her table for one more stranger. So when Elisha was passing through Shunem, she urged him to stay for a meal. And whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. I suppose like many single men, Elisha loved to know where he could get a square meal. And as we see the example of this Shunemite woman, it is worth asking ourselves how generous are we? You know, wealth and generosity are two different things. Some wealthy people only seem generous. They are so wealthy that what they give actually is only a pittance of what they have. And yet, on the other hand, some generous people are only half as wealthy as they seem to us. They give out of all proportion with what they have. And that is what God wants us to do, rich and poor alike, to be so generous. There is no use pretending that you would give more if you had more, because generosity does not depend on wealth. How generous are you with the money that you already have? That is the real test. Can you remember the last time that you made a genuine sacrifice with either your time or your money or some other resource? Well, the woman from Shunem was more and more generous to Elisha as their friendship developed. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. You can see that the woman from Shunem wanted to support Elisha's ministry because he was a man of God. It was for that reason that she built him this sort of Walk up apartment. And it was a nice place. It was the sort of Shunammite Hilton, I suppose. It had a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp. Everything that Elisha could possibly want. It was his home away from home. And therefore, for the Christian, the Shunammite is a good example of how to help missionaries. By missionary, I simply mean anyone who labors full-time for the good news about Jesus Christ and depends on the tithes and offerings of the church for daily needs. This is one of the ways to support missionaries, by showing hospitality. The Shunammite treated her home as a sort of mission station. She built an addition onto her house for the sole purpose of giving Elisha a place to stay. Whenever missionaries visit this church, they ought to receive the same kind of creative hospitality. They should be greeted with warmth and treated with honor. And if possible, as was the case in a church I visited this very week, a church should provide a home for missionaries who are on furlough, and if not a home, at least a place in someone's house. Christians should also give generously to the cause of world missions. The missionary statesman Jim Reepsom recently lamented the stinginess of the church. He said, unfortunately, many appeals for Christian work go unheeded because churches and individuals say they have no more money to spare. That's bunk, he says. Christians are sitting on huge piles of money, but they are reluctant to part with some of it. Therefore, we need to listen to Jesus more and more. We have to soak our hearts with his perspective on wealth. We have to ask ourselves why God has given so much money to so many Christians in America at this time in history. What is our responsibility to the church and to the world? And Those questions are good ones for us to ask ourselves. Our responsibility is to be like the Shunammite woman, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. That combination of piety and prosperity is a powerful tool for the progress of the gospel. The Lord can always use our ones and our tens to translate the Bible and to do evangelism and to plant churches in other parts of the world. But sometimes it takes the hundreds and the thousands and the millions to do the Lord's work. Sometimes one rich Christian can do much more for the spread of the gospel in material terms than many poor saints. I know of a godly man who has given many thousands to Christian work around the world, and this is his motto, every Christian should be a missionary, or else make as much money as possible to support as many missionaries as possible. And that's a good way to think. Now, the Shunammite woman was such a faithful supporter that it was only natural for Elisha to want to reciprocate. And so one day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and he lay down there. And we can imagine that his bed was so comfortable that it reminded him of how much the Shunammite had done for him. And I suppose he had thanked her before, but this time he wanted to do something more tangible. So Elisha said to her, You have gone to all this trouble for us. Now, what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. I suppose the Shunammite was the kind of woman who it is always hard to buy for. She didn't even know herself what else she could possibly want. She had a good home. She had strong family ties. And She didn't need any tax breaks or any political favors. She was perfectly content with what she already had. And she was even content with what she did not have, as we will discover. She had learned, as the Scripture says, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, what would you get for the woman who has everything? What can be done for her? Elisha asked, and then his sidekick Gehazi had a brainstorm. He knew just the thing. Gehazi said, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. You see, there is more to life than being rich. The only thing the Shunammite did not have was the one thing that she really wanted, and that was a son. And her problem was not simply that she had not experienced the joys of motherhood, but that when her husband died, and of course he was old, when he died there would be no one to take care of her. Childlessness, as you may know, was considered in those days to be a curse. For although the woman was prosperous, she would lose the title to her property if she did not have an heir to retain the title. And so a son seemed like the perfect gift. Elisha couldn't wait to see the look on her face When he gave her the happy news, Elisha said, "'Call her,' and so he called her, and she stood in the doorway, and he said, "'About this time next year, you will hold a son in your arms.'" But then the Shunammite said something that just must have frozen the smile right off Elisha's face. "'No, my lord,' she objected. "'Don't mislead your servant, O man of God.'" Don't tease me like that, Elisha. Don't toy with me. Don't get my hopes up. This was the doubt, you see, of a suspicious woman. The Shunammite wanted a son so badly that she could not bear to be disappointed. And what Elisha said sounded too good to be true, and so she feared the worst. And of course, ultimately, she was not simply doubting Elisha, she was doubting the word of God. She was not willing to believe in God's goodness or to trust in His promise. Therefore, this story is a rebuke to every doubting Christian. Some people live with the suspicion that God is out to get them. They do not believe that God is good all the way through. Instead, they think that, I suppose, that God is like a sort of giant apple. He's crisp and juicy on the outside, but somewhere near the core, there's something bitter to taste. They keep waiting for disaster to strike or for judgment to fall. The truth is that God is good to all His children, and He is good all the way through. It is His very nature to be good. He always has been good. He always will be good, and he is good at this very moment. Therefore, he will make good on all his promises. He gave the Shunammite a son just as he promised. The woman became pregnant, and the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. Here we see in the words of Psalm 113 that God is to be praised because he settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. God made good on that promise and He will make good on every promise that He has ever made to His people. He will forgive your sins for Jesus' sake. He will fill you with the Holy Spirit. He will give you everything that you need for life and godliness. He will lead you in the way of eternal life. He will protect you from the evil one. But all of these Promises are not to be greeted with even the slightest skepticism. They are all to be believed. In this case, God was good to the Shunammite beyond her wildest hopes. But then, her hopes were dashed. The child grew, as we read in verse 18, and he went out one day with his father, who was with the reapers, And he said, my head, oh, my head. And his father told the servant, carry him to his mother. And after the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. We see in these verses, the tender love of a mother for her only child, still young enough for him to sit on her lap. And then the son of her dreams dies right in her arms. Most likely it is thought from cerebral malaria. And as you can imagine, the grief was more than the Shunammite woman could bear, more even than she was able to share with her husband. She wanted to see Elisha first, and so she went up and laid the child on the bed of the man of God and then shut the door and went out. She called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and returned. Now her husband was surprised. Maybe he preferred to save his religion for holy days or perhaps he suspected that something was wrong. In any case, he was very puzzled by her timing. Why go to him today? He said, It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right she said. Perhaps she was trying to reassure her husband or perhaps she was trying to hush him up for literally what she says is simply peace. Then the woman went to look for her so-called benefactor, Elisha. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. Now, some have seen this woman's journey as an act of faith. I wonder what you think of it. In her faith, she laid her son on Elisha's bed. In faith, she went to ask the man of God for help. And in faith, she clung to Elisha until her son was raised from the dead. R.D. Patterson says her faith convinced her that somehow Elisha could be instrumental in again doing the seemingly impossible. Perhaps he could once more give life to her son. So she made directly for Elisha and grasping tightly his feet, she poured out the details of the tragedy. Now that is possible. It is possible that the Shunammite woman did act in faith. The only trouble with this interpretation is that she never asked for Elisha's help. She wanted to deal with him directly, alright, but mainly because she wanted to blame him for her troubles. As soon as Elisha saw her, he could tell that something was amiss. He saw her in the distance, and he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. Of course, everything wasn't all right, but she wanted Elisha to be the first to know, and so she brushed Gehazi aside with a curt Reply, and when she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. The Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Well, here's why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord, she said. Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes You see, this is the grief of a bitter woman. As Elisha says, she is in bitter distress. And understandably so. She has suffered one of the bitterest of all griefs, the death of an only son. And even putting her son on Elisha's bed seems to me to have been an act of bitterness. She was giving back Elisha his so-called gift. It was as much to say, here, take it back. The irony is that she knew it would be like this from the very beginning. I told you so, she said to Elijah. I never asked for a son in the first place. And she was right. She never did ask for a son in the first place. The English poet Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote, It is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. But That's not how the Shunammite saw things. In her mind, it was better never to have loved at all than to have loved and then lost. Now, the Bible does not condemn this woman for her grief. The Lord never does that, does He? All through the Bible, we see that believers take their bitterest griefs and deepest sorrows and most dire complaints to the Lord, and He is always patient with the raging emotions of the believer under trial. Yet the Shunammite's attitude is a warning against the sin of bitterness. In her anger against God, she forgets all of his good gifts, including that gift of a son. It would have been much better for her to say, as Job said, when he underwent much worse trials, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Instead, this woman forgets all God's benefits and is swallowed up by bitterness. And may I just suggest that if you find that your life is bitter, if you are bitter about your family or about your station in life or about your work or about your income or about some trial or grief or sorrow, And if you are so bitter, it is at least possible that you have been forgetting a few things. That even in your bitterness and your grief, that there must be at least some things for which you ought to praise the Lord. And when you do so, you will find that even in your bitterness, there will be something of the sweetness of the goodness of God. Now, as soon as Elisha heard the Shunammites' complaint, he understood that the son he promised must be dead. His kindness had turned out to be a curse. I suppose a lesser man might have defended himself and tried to explain that his prophecies didn't always come with warranties. But Elisha sent his servant with all possible haste to help Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. Well, that wasn't enough for the Shunammite woman. She didn't think Gehazi was up to the task. The child's mother said to Elisha, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And so Elisha got up. And followed her. And here we see that the woman has not entirely lost her faith in Elisha or even in the living Lord. But she did have her doubts about Gehazi. And rightly so. Gehazi went on ahead, and this is verse 31, and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. And so Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him the boy has not awakened. In Gehazi's hands, even Elisha's staff that symbol of spiritual authority, failed to revive the boy. Elisha needed to perform this miracle in person by the power of God. And so he did. Elisha reached the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door, and prayed to the Lord. And then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out upon him, the boy's body grew warm and Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room, and then he got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Now this was not, as some may be thinking, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Twice we are told that the boy was dead, not half dead or nearly dead, but actually dead and on the account of several eyewitnesses. And the people of ancient Palestine knew a dead body when they felt one. Elisha did not need someone else to come and double-check the pulse reading on this boy. The boy was dead, and he had been dead for some time, for the round-trip from Shunem to Mount Carmel and back was a distance of some 50 kilometers. If anything, what Elisha did was a mouth-to-mouth resurrection and he did it by faith. The first thing he did when he shut that door to the upper room was to pray to the Lord. The work of God, and I suppose especially in the case of miracles, cannot be accomplished apart from prayer. And I suppose that that is the reason why Gehazi failed in his attempt to raise this boy. He did not pray. He simply laid the staff on the boy's head. But Elisha prayed in faith that God would raise the boy from the dead. As we read in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith women received back their sons from the dead. It was also an act of faith for Elisha to crouch over the boy and to touch his corpse. for According to the law of God, anyone who touched a dead body became unclean. Yet Elisha trusted that God had the power to restore life and health to that body which was dead. He performed the resurrection by faith. Elisha's miracle thus reminds us of that miracle Elijah did when he raised the widow's son in Zarephath back in 1 Kings chapter 17. And now Elisha has matched Elijah's greatest feat. He has proved himself to be a second Elijah. But much more importantly than that, Elisha's miracle points forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to the power of God that was revealed when he raised his son from the dead. In these ministries of Elijah and Elisha, we catch a glimpse of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is a great mystery, but it is as if God could not restrain his power over death any longer. He wanted to give us a hint, a glimpse that he was and is the God of the resurrection. And of course, the resurrection is as essential to the Christian faith as the crucifixion. Of course, it is true that Jesus had to die on the cross. Of course, he had to bear the curse of God against our sin and our rebellion by dying on the cross of Calvary. But Jesus also had to be raised from the dead. He had to prove his victory over death by coming back to life. And thus, the resurrection is part of the gospel. When the apostle Paul reminded the Corinthians how they were saved, he listed the basic facts of the gospel. First, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Second, that he was buried. Third, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see, a gospel that proclaims only the cross is only half a gospel. Not only did sin have to be paid for, but death had to be conquered and defeated. And the good news is not simply that Jesus died, but also that he rose again. The great evangelist Billy Graham is devoted, as you may know, his life to preaching the gospel. And in his autobiography, he writes of a time when he was reminded to preach the resurrection as well as the crucifixion. Within the Soviet Union, he writes, I had the invaluable assistance of Father Vladimir Sorokin, dean of the Orthodox Cathedral in Leningrad. At the end of our extensive mission in the Soviet Union, Father Sorokin gave me a lesson in evangelistic preaching. You've listened to me preach a lot of sermons now, I said to him. Please give me any critique you might have. Put more emphasis On the resurrection, he said. The Roman Catholic Church puts its emphasis on the cross, and that's fine, so do we. But we put the main emphasis on the resurrection, because without that event, the cross has no meaning. You see, the gospel is the cross plus the empty tomb, the crucifixion plus the resurrection. And if it is true that God is the God of the resurrection... And every one of us, every child of God, should get his or her hopes up. Christians do not go around saying, well, yeah, we think there might be a heaven, but let's not get our hopes up. When we recite together the Apostles' Creed, we do not say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, but I'm trying not to get my hopes up too much. You see, the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of the resurrection of the Christian. And for that reason, every child of God should get his or her hopes up and keep them there. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for the rich teaching of Scripture, and we ask that every one of us would take to heart both the warnings we have heard about the dangers of wealth and also the example of this godly, wealthy woman. And we pray, too, in faith, in hope for the resurrection. And we ask that our Lord Jesus would come soon so that we, too, might receive the reward that has been promised to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, box 2000 philadelphia pa 19103 or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books audio teachings commentaries booklets videos and a wealth of other materials from outstanding reformed teachers and theologians thank you again for your continued support and for listening to every last word